welcome to today's edition of The Bradley Hall Show. I am your host, The Bradley Hall. First, I just wanted to say thank you. Whether you're watching or you're listening, we certainly appreciate your support. We'd like to ask you for your help to please share on social media and with someone you know that that, um, may be interested For more information on what I do and how to work with me, please visit my website at www.thebradleyhall.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the the Bradley Hall Show. My guest today is Shema. Is it Sharef? Yeah, you got it. Good, good. Uh, Shema is a uh, first-generation Algerian-American immigrant and childhood complex trauma survivor. She has a BA in psychology with training in clinical research and a background working one-on-one with marginalized children experiencing severe trauma. We certainly need more of those. Uh, Shame and I met while she was studying at the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaches, where I am the director of accreditation. She was earning her certification as a trauma recovery coach. I invited her here this evening to have her share her story about growing up Uh, torn between two cultures and share her story about what she's discovered about her family's culture and heritage and how that has changed her life. Um, And uh, there's a note here that you want to continue your education in art therapy for trauma for survivors. Hopefully we get into that later, but uh, for now, Shema, uh, thank you for joining me. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone joining us. Um, I'm really excited to share my story. Um, I did mention earlier that I was feeling a little low today. It's been an emotional day, but I'm still going to try to give you guys the best experience. So thank you for showing up. Yeah. Um, should we just jump right into like kind of the presentation and like just flow through it? Well, yeah, let's do that. Go, yeah, do that. And then, uh, then I'll come in after that and we'll talk about it a little bit. Cause there's a lot of your stories probably not in here that, that piqued my interest when we had a chance to talk. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we could just, I could just highlight essentially, um, parts of my story. And if you want to jump in and just ask questions, that'd be great. Um, so yeah, I actually was born in, uh, Sieg, Algeria, which is, uh, Northwest of, uh, Algeria and North Africa. Um, I came here when I was six months old with my family. So my mother, my father, and my two older sisters. At the time, my mom was pregnant with my younger sister, um, who's joining us, but she's off to the side, just listening and taking notes. Um, Yeah, and so that's kind of where my story starts in terms of this disruption of cultures is that I think you know, my parents never expected to come to America. They came when they were in their 30s, um, like late 30s, almost 40s. And obviously, um, my two older sisters um, had spent some of their childhood in Algeria and learning Algerian and the culture and everything like that. Whereas me and my younger sister um, didn't have that canvas when once we moved here. So the the disruption in our family between the two cultures was more apparent, I would say, between my younger sister and I. Okay, um, so if, if I may, when your parents moved here, they were in their 30s? Is that to recap? Is that what you said? Yeah, like 30s. Okay, um, okay. and how and your siblings were how old? The older ones? Um, so my oldest sister is eight years older than me. And then the following one is four years older than me. So I was about six months. So they were about, you know, eight, nine. Um, okay. Five, six. 
And then, and then your younger sister was born here. Is that correct? Yeah, she was born here. So we came here in July. She was born in December of 1989. Okay. Okay. And that's, that's an integral part of the story. And, and for, for those listening, uh, this is going to be the basis of the whole story. Basically you, the household was split. You two of you were essentially Americans uh, and your older sisters were, had a lot of influence from, from uh, Algeria, Mm -hmm. but were also growing up. So they were, they were kind of immigrants growing up in America. Your parents were actually immigrants and you were essentially just Americans. So there was, there was a, a, a split in the household, so to speak, on your ideology and how, how you view things. That, that Absolutely. Pretty good summation? Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another thing I did want to mention because I think it ties um, a huge part of it in, which I'm finding out now, is that link, like the languages as well was divided. Um, so my parents would speak Algerian with my two older sisters, but because me and my, or at least I can speak for myself, I struggled um, a lot in my first four or five years because uh, we would go back to Algeria for the summer for like three months and then come back. And then, so I think with the trauma of being, you know, between these places, I would learn Algerian completely and forget English there. Like they would try to speak to me. I didn't remember a word and then vice versa would, would happen when I come here back to America. Um, it was hard for me to like acclimate again. And so I remember having like time maybe in like third grade Uh, I had a teacher who would come and help me like learn phonetically. So there was that aspect as well of not having parents who spoke proper English and then not, for me at least, really struggling between the two languages um, at an early stage. So I noticed that my parents actively spoke to my younger sister and I in English, in broken English, but uh, that was something that I picked up on as well. Okay, how, how did that feel at that age? I mean, how did people treat you when you when you went back to Algeria? Let's let's start there. Um, so yeah, we went back. Uh, the first time I remember them being really welcoming to me, and my younger sister, um, and I found it um, I found it difficult more so the second time we went back for like the full summer um, because I was more conscious. I was about eight. Um, yeah, eight or nine. My sister was like seven. She's like a year younger than me. She doesn't remember that much. But for me, I remember the first time it being like my extended family was very welcoming, very much like, oh my God, this is our our like nieces and nephews and they're American ones, right? They would call us Americanio, which is basically just like the Americanized or um, yeah. So that didn't really affect me as much the first time I remember. But the second time I do remember feeling this um, disconnect. For my family um okay. and not being able to like i feel like when we went back the second time like everyone just had a blast like everyone was just like they adapted so well even my younger sister was having a blast and i found it really difficult um and i think it was because of that that language barrier that i couldn't overcome so yeah that was okay. like the, the first isolation i felt from my two cultures Okay. And did you go, did you go back every, every year after that? No. So that's when, when shit hit the fan to say the least uh, with my family because of like the 2008 like housing crisis and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Definitely understood. Um, <clears throat> for those of us who are a little older, we, we, I, I'm on this, 
you know, the side your parents were on. And it was uh, 2008 was a brutal time for sure. Yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> okay. So, and, and you felt the same thing when you, when you came back here, right? That, I mean, you were, you felt here, you were Algerian. And when, you, and when you're in Algeria, you felt American. Is that, yeah. is that how this was working? Yeah. So I didn't really notice when I was younger, how much I was Algerian compared to, you know, anything else. Because the, I, I don't know if you guys can see, but that photo I put up there on the left side um, is Beirut. We'll put it back up here real quick. Let's put yeah. Um, so yeah, that on the left is Beirut. That on the right is um, the Sharif uh, River in Algeria. Okay. But I, I thought that it had similarities to my last name, but that's, we'll get to that later. So yeah, Bay Ridge is a very much, um, it's like on the cusp of Brooklyn, right next to Staten Island. So that bridge right there, the Verrazano, um, that connects Staten Island to Brooklyn. So this was like a very secluded area, but it because it wasn't very expensive either, there was a huge um, or a big immigrant population, a big Arab population, even Algerians. You know, my one of my mom's best friend lived a block away from us, her and her. Her family. So I never felt like I was Algerian. I just felt like almost Arab or other or immigrant in that sense until I got okay. older. And then those those specificities of culture started to come into my mind. Sure. So and I, I guess so. The point was, and this is what I gathered from your story is that you just felt different all the way around. Did you? Oh, yeah. You just felt like you didn't fit in anywhere. Is that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that had to be, that had to be tough and and that that as a teenager i'm sure that that probably got even worse you know <laughs> it did get worse and then it didn't because it okay. like got worse in some aspects and then other ways it got better for me okay yeah okay uh you want to move on to your next slide on that? <laughs> huh you want to move on to the next slide Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So yeah, this is, okay. So to your point, when I got, when I be start to just get older, I, I always, I think from a young age being so, so isolated from, and, and feeling secluded from, you know, the norm because I couldn't see myself on television. I couldn't see myself across um, just all kinds of me media, even like music and stuff like that. Uh, that the, so I, I grew conscious of that being other in terms of just physical, physically looking different. Um, because Bay Ridge has a big immigrant population, um, but it also has a huge conservative white population, like Irish, Norwegian, um, that type of, of people. They're very uh, secluded, I would say. Like Bay Ridge is very much you could tell where the cheaper places are and you could tell the expensive places. So in terms of that, I felt that um, the, the, I guess the economic um, differences as well from our races. So that's when I started picking up on, um, you know, be going to a school with predominantly white people, an uh, elementary school is predominantly white um, and seeing all the people in AP classes or honors are all white. There was there is no person that looked like me. There was no person who, yeah. who, yeah, sure. stumbled me. And this and this was in. I, I'm sorry. It was this was in was in New York City. Yeah, New York City, right? Bay Ridge. So that's why I wanted to highlight because Bay Ridge is different in the sense that it has that part where you can see it's beautiful by the by the pier. 
Um, I think Bon Jovi owns like a, a million dollar house, like, you know, houses over there. And, and so it's very beautiful in that sense, but the further you go up, uh, you could see that the population changes as well as like the, the amount of space. Okay. And so you chose to, to go to a more diverse school system, right? No, these were zone schools for me. So that's what I okay. want to get into was like zip codes, but essentially okay. that's when I started noticing it. And so when I got older and started like first, for example, I, you know, graduated high school early at 16. I was just ready to get out of my house and just, so I, that, that's what I was saying. In a sense, I was feeling isolated, but in another way, I was feeling motivated um, okay. to just go out there and, and live my life. Um, but at the same time, I was met with the reality of my situation. And this is kind of where it taps into when I started feeling extra um, abandoned by the system and whitewashed. So this is what um, is essentially happening right now. Um, and so the US Census con continues to whitewash North African and Middle Eastern ancestry by um, claiming that we are, or by the US Census considering us as Caucasian and making us fill out applications as Caucasians. You'll see over there, okay. white, for example, Lebanese, Egyptian. And, you know, my whole life I've I battled that thing of being not white. So when I'm yeah. to now put an identity that does not match what I'm feeling on the inside, this is really when shit starts to hit the fan with me. Yeah, um, and understandable. And I, we're, I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of people who who listen who can relate uh, for various reasons. And I and we have a lot of uh, we we have a lot of podcast listeners and we have radio listeners. So I want to explain a little bit uh, about the slide that we're looking at. We're looking at the uh, slide here that highlights the North African countries as well as the Saudi, most of the countries in the Saudi Arabian uh, Peninsula. Uh, and, and there's also, you have a, 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 a cutout here of a, an application where they've asked you your race and um, you have to choose to be white. And then under the subtitles are Lebanese, Egyptian, uh, that falls into this Middle East, North African countries. And, and that's what she's, that's what you're explaining here is that uh, you don't have the, you're not white. You don't feel white. Uh, you may not necessarily feel black. I don't, I don't, I don't mean to put words into your mouth. I don't know that that's the case. Um, but it seems like that what you're saying is that, that you just didn't find the peg where someone expected you to fit. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist, right? Exactly. And it was also, yeah, just looking at where Algeria is, it is in Africa. So yeah, yeah. To have this this is where the whitewashing really started to to specifically leave like a nasty taste in my mouth because it's it's a part of I think the the bigger picture of white supremacy and what it actually is the the narrative that it's trying to to control essentially and trying to per, to portray. And so seeing that I'm I'm considered white and not black or African, the African part. I didn't mind black. I don't, you know, wouldn't consider myself black prior to doing my research and everything. But right at that moment, seeing that I wasn't African was also very isolating because I remember going back to Algeria and feeling like I was in Africa and feeling this very right. like maternal connection to it. So that was, yeah. you know, and I, so I, I, uh, I agree with you. The, the first, the first thing is I don't understand why this question exists at all. I, 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 someone posed that to me about eight years ago and we got into a great discussion 
of why we even ask for for our race on anything. It doesn't, unless it's a medical questionnaire with your physician and there are genetic reasons why, which now we have DNA tests for that. So I don't know, this is an outdated question. Yeah. And um, it's a carryover from, from a system that it was designed to take away rights of people who didn't answer the question correctly. Um, and, uh, it's a holdover from that system and it needs to be done away with. That's my, that's, that's my educated opinion on the whole thing. So I agree with you 100% as far as that's concerned. And that, and I don't have the problem with this that you have, uh, on an emotional level. I just, I just wanted you to know that I agree with you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it, it feels good to hear it back because it does feel like, unless I am talking to someone from North Africa or someone who has had similar experiences to me as a first generation immigrant, it is difficult to portray or to, to like express the way that I feel in terms of not even being acknowledged, like in the eyes of a system that is trying to like, like, you know what I mean? To try to break our, our culture and our heritage apart in terms of this is what you are, this is what you are. I, if I, I, I felt like everybody knew what they were, either Hispanic or Latino, you know, yeah. white, black, African. And then I felt like, where am I? Because I'm definitely not white. I'm definitely not yeah. white. And, and I think, I think, and I would love someone, if they have information on this, to either back me up or correct me. I, I, I like to speak the truth, so I, I don't mind being corrected. I think this is unique to very few Western countries. I don't think this is a worldwide phenomena where you're asked what your race is. Yeah. Can I, I think I this is uniquely American. And the reason for this is if we can have, I mean, you want to, you want to have a hard conversation? Are we, are we doing that tonight? I'm down for it. I'm ready yeah. for it. Yeah. This, this comes down to when the slaves were freed and they didn't have certain rights if you were black. And if you had any type of black heritage, you were considered black and had to answer black. And that's mm -hmm. the entire reason this was put in place in this country in the first place. So when I said, when I was being cryptic and said, this is a holdover from that era, uh, we, we certainly don't want to get into uh, how long ago the era was because that is a, a very, uh, very delicate conversation is the word I'll use delicate. It doesn't matter how, how long ago it was, it's still a holdover. And that's why I said, I don't understand why we're still asking this question. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> Two things to say to that. Um, the first, I'll say this book, um, One Drop by Yaba Blay, delves. This is the book that helped me sort of not wrestle with, but come to terms with my identity as someone who now considers himself Black and considers himself African in, in totality. So, this book. She starts it off with all these beautiful, you know, this is a book of, of photographs, but one of the things I loved in the beginning and why it's called One Drop was sort of what you were referring to um, when the, the um, Black people were freed. Um, I don't know if you can see that clearly, but yeah, this is exactly what the one, it was called the One Drop Rule. And okay. so, yeah, I'll read the um, bottom over here. Black by law, one drop or one or 132 Negro blood, racial genealogy. So even okay. if you have one, one of 32 drop, yeah, of Negro blood. So you could see that person over there. You mm -hmm. would be considered black 
Right. Yeah, and that was initiated after uh, Bacon's Rebellion. So when uh, before Bacon's Rebellion in Jamestown, Virginia, uh, there most of your slaves were poor white people that had been brought over. Uh, they were they were dirt poor Irish, or they were prisoners brought over from Europe. The whole indentured servant thing. They were pretty much mistreated. They enslaved a lot of Native Americans, and there were a few Africans. And uh, the there was uh, there was a, a political dispute uh, with Nathaniel Bacon, and uh, he caused a riot. He, he he incited the slaves to riot. They burned down some buildings, and they they killed some white people. And we're talking uh, back in the 1600s, and that was like not a thing that they allowed to happen. Uh, that sat with them very well. So they had to decide what they were going to do about it. And so what they did was is they instituted a new law that for the first time, poor white people could own land. Before then, you had you had the landowners, and then you had the poor people who were working the land, and then you had uh, the people in the middle that were the overseers of what was going on. And they instituted a law that now granted poor white people could eventually work their way up and own land. And anyone who was a white slave who their owner died, they were automatically freed. Any slave of color could not own land and they were now inheritable property. And so what they did was, is they prevented riots because any white slave, if any slave of color started talking about that they wanted to start a riot or they were going to revolt, the white slave would become a snitch because they now their their future they're they're going to they're going to they're going to break out of here they're going to own land their future is in jeopardy so the extreme wealthy bought their loyalty and turned them against the other people who who came from the same economic system that they or level they were in and they they then turned on them and then that that was the creation of shelter slavery so then white landowners stopped investing in non-white slaves because they could be freed and so they started investing in, in slaves of color because they were inheritable property and they could hand their slave those that property and their their children their offspring down to their families and that obviously they would they would breed and they would grow and it was a financial investment and that was the start of that was the start of racism in this country a lot of people don't know this story this is an absolute 100 verifiable fact and that's why we're talking about one drop the book that you're talking about one drop because if you if you had black genes you were property if you were half white you were still black on your birth certificate because you were still property it all came down to economic reasons yeah, so I don't know if you can see here, but that's exactly what you're explaining. This is black mother, her son, and her daughter. But I don't know if you can see she's very fair. She's white yes. compared yeah. to that. Um, but she's still enslaved and same yeah. here. With yeah. yeah. Um, that's so it's outdated, right? Of course, yeah. It needs to go away. But I will be devil's advocate because I just learned this recently. Okay. Um, and this kind of ties into what we're discussing as well with the history of North Africa. Lay it on me. Um, so basically, uh, I don't know if anyone here is familiar with the history of Algeria or North Africa in specific, but uh, Algeria was colonized by France in eighteen um, in the eighteen hundreds, 
1873, I think, something around there, and didn't, um, we didn't get our, our independence until the revolution in 1962. Um, my father was born in 1961, to give you some perspective. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so with that, there is, I, I know you were saying that other Western countries don't have this race thing and, and all of that to fill in, you know, and while I, while I get it there, I, I was, I was reading an article about the situation in France because of this contentious relationship with Algeria and France, um, yeah. Algerians are treated very, very poorly. Um, and so what they have there though, is that there's no, because there is no tracking of race or of identities there, we can't, there is no tracking of what's happening to our people. What's, what's actually happening in terms of, let's say police violence or, you know, other situations in terms of the economy. Okay. Um, and that is where I see kind of like this, this ability to continue hurting us with um, a cloak of invisibility, okay. um, you know, cause there's, there's nobody keeping track. How can you say that we did anything? And so, and with that, there is still the contentious history with Francis is that they still are, they, when they talk about the Algerian war or the revolution, they continuously downplay how much or how many people were displaced, murdered, tortured, everything like that. And, and so it is way up in the millions. The total count is still not like there's no exact whole count from all that because it left the country in a very much broken place. And France was aggressive in terms of leaving, especially Algeria, because they did colonize Morocco and other parts of Africa. Yeah. Um, but they were particularly aggressive with Algerian people. Um, yeah. So with that, I, I have struggles with like, doing away with the whole race thing because we still live in this system. And I think that if we, like uh, under the Obama administration, I know that they were making headways to actually including MENA, which is, uh, it would just be uh, Middle Eastern, North African. But under the Trump administration, they threw that out the window. Okay. So like, we're still, you know what I mean? Like we're trying to get there, but it's just like, we're not there yet. Um, and this is still an issue. We're still not recognized across the board. So when you look at a place like Bay Ridge, which is very much white, but also mixed with a lot of Arab communities all across the board, Yemeni, um, Lebanese, Syrian, uh, Algerian, Moroccan, you suddenly now have a whole group of people filling out white in the US census. And this is how money and other, you know, things are distributed within the community. And that's false because these people are not white. Their experience is not white at all. And so this is, this is something that's also been um, a drive of mine to get our identity recognized because our history is very important um, and not having it was really difficult for me sure. to form just a whole identity. So that, that's fascinating that you bring up. That's a great point that you bring up about there that, you know, that France in particular doesn't doesn't ask for uh, an ethnic identity and how that seems that seems to help cover up or swallow up uh, an entire race. My, 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 my concern is I, I've done a lot of genealogical work because of my circumstance, my NPE circumstance. And the thing 
the thing that I've noticed a lot is that people claim a family heritage, particularly a lot of times based on their last name. So I will use Irish for a very good example because uh, we actually have this in my family, my wife's family. They all think they're Irish. Well, uh, unfortunately, on her DNA test, uh, she's 1% Irish. So I think we can pretty much scratch that one off the list. Now, <clears throat> so it gets in, she's 34% Scottish. Well, some of the Scottish migrated to Ireland and migrated to the United States in, in, uh, in history. So it, it starts to get into a question. My, my question is with DNA is that uh, we, ha we have a lot of people claim heritage uh, and let's use your, your example. And I don't want to, I'm not doing this to break your example down, but I want to use you as an example. Okay. But, but I mean, let your, let's say your parents are Algerian, but how, but how do you know? And you may know, you may know, and, and we can do this through genealogical research and different types of things. But a lot of times your parents are Algerian. You're like, we're Algerian, but <clears throat> you may have grandparents that were Nigerian and grandparents that were Greek and grandparents that were Saudi Arabian and somehow they settled in Algeria and then one or two generations later you were having a discussion about being Algerian which obviously happens here in the United States that's what this entire country is developed from so the conversation <clears throat> gets a little convoluted when breaking down um, and I guess I guess I was going to ask you a question but I think I can probably answer it I guess the it really comes down to preferred identity, right? It, it comes down to how you identify. Yeah. Um, I, it, I, I just, I was going to be ridiculous. Sometimes the best way to make a point is to be ridiculous about it. Uh, you know, are we going to have an application where you have 265 categories to choose from? Right. Yeah. You know, um, and I, please understand, I am in no way, shape or form trying to nullify what, your point and how you feel about things. I, I, that's why I had you here because I, I, I loved your story. I, I, I love how you articulate it and what you've gone through. I think there's so many people that are going to identify with it. Um, it's just nothing's easy, is it? There, no. There's never an easy answer. Right. So, okay. All right. Your show, what do you got next? Um, yeah. If we continue on. Um, so this is uh, where uh, this is a quote by Ben Khaldun, who's credited as the father of sociology. He was around um, in the 1300s. So this quote was about um, my people, specifically from the Maghrib. And when we say Maghrib, it means, in Arabic, it means west of. So this is when narrative comes into the play a lot in our stories specifically, because the way we've been called from Berber to Maghrib to um, uh, we have uh, we have so many names over history that we've been called uh, yeah. Moors. That's the word I was thinking of, the Moors. Um, and a lot of it has been retained in history from a perspective that's not ours. So Maghrib being the Arabs who, con who conquered uh, North Africa, which is a big reason why uh, the North Africans speak Arabic, mixed in with uh, Temezir, which is actually uh, I don't know if you guys know what Berbers are, but they're the indigenous people of this region. And so we have Arabic mixed in with um, Berber, but that actually means barbaric in like Greek. Um, and so this is another thing where we have, uh, because even the name that we're, the indigenous name that we're called that's supposed to be respectful is uh, offensive. 
Um, and so that language is Temezir, which is what we, I, in another slide you'll see, uh, we have a whole alphabet and, and you know, there's been recordings of, of um, those tablets back in, in like 10,000 BC. So this, this is a very ancient language. Um, and so, yeah, so the father of sociology, this is him commenting on um, this group of people, the Maghrib. They belong to a powerful, formidable, brave, and numerous people, a true people like so many others the world has seen, like the Arabs, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, the men who belong to this family of people have inhabited the Maghrib since the beginning. Um, and if you look at that photo down there, um, I'll just explain it. It's um, essentially uh, like, I would say it's sand or rocks, but it's a monument um, of the Numidian, Numidian uh, kingdom, which was existed, you know, ancient times. So again, with like the, the, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, um, a little uh, further than that, even, I saw some studies that said that um, the sandstone that's there, that's found in this location in Algeria is dated back a couple of thousand years before um, the pyramids in ancient Greek or ancient Egypt. So there's, to give you a little perspective in terms of timeline, uh, this monument was, was you know, where they uh, buried their kings, their queens, because they did have a lot of queens as well. Um, and they practice a lot of uh, ceremonies that you can kind of still see in the area today. So um, when I found out about this, I was very excited to dive into this history of my people. Um, and also it, it, it felt almost like as I was reading it, like so true to, to like the family that I know, you know, back in Algeria, the, the this, the things I've seen and just how I felt being there, it felt like that was a reality, like that was true. Um, and it felt sort of like uh, parts of me were connecting um, once I started understanding that there is a rich history um, in North Africa. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Should we go into the next slide? Sure. So this is kind of where I was telling you about the research I was looking at. Um, so recently, um, the oldest known evidence for anatomically modern humans as of 2017 are fossils found at Jebel, which means um, mountain, Erhun in Morocco, about uh, dated about 300,000 years ago. So um, this put archaeologists um, in a really big are in a, in a tough position in terms of reimagining the tree. I don't know if you could see that over there. That's what our last common ancestors, I put a little graph over there. Um, they're starting to have to reconsider that we didn't just come from East Africa around 200,000 years ago, that, that the, the, modernly, the modern human probably came from a Pan-African form, meaning that these types of these, these other species, Homo sapiens, have come together. And over time, we became the modern human. So this was really shocking to me to know that, you know, 300,000 years ago, we can find um, our ancestors. Um, I was just blown away. <laughs> and then to find out also just, uh, so the Maghrib region in Northwestern Africa is believed to have been inhabited by Berbers, which, um, the true name is actually Imazine, 
which uh, I'll get into a little later, but Viber birds from at least 10,000 uh, 10, BC, prehistoric Tifne, which is what I was describing earlier, scripts were found in the Wuhan region, which is like my family lives there, part of my family lives in Wuhan, so okay. very exciting to find that out. Uh, but yeah, during the pre-Roman era, several successive independent states, so we have, the, I can't even pronounce that, the Masail in, existed before King Messina unified the people of Numidia. So there's the Numidia kingdom and Nu, wait, Nubian kingdom. So there's, those are two separate. And I think that, yeah, yeah those are often confused, but they, they both existed uh, separately, but around the same time. So Numidia was a very much the formidable kingdom um, at the time. Okay. So yeah, you could see that that's what the, what the um, alphabet looks like. Um, it also has very much like a um, similar look to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics. Um, and then there is a sign. I don't know if you guys can see that, but on the next slide, we can go and find it. Oh, it's probably the next one. But this one, yeah, I just want to give you guys a little perspective of what um, it looks like in terms of uh, the geography. Um, so Sikh Mahaskat is where um, I was born, where I'm from, but it ha obviously has a rich history because it was formerly St. Denis du Sikh. So there was a lot of Spanish influence as well as um, Greek influence because the Carthage was, was in Libya, but very much all connected. So yeah, this gives you kind of a little bit of a background in terms of where um, like the most concentration of activity was happening um, in the ancient times. And yeah, this is, this and is for, also- and, and for the for those who are listening on the podcast or on the uh, WUBI radio, mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna put this PowerPoint up on my website so they can come and check these these out. These are, these some of these are fascinating. My website is www.thebradleyhall.com dot com. Uh, you'll want to look for the podcast, click on the podcast and, um, or actually the blog, look for my blog, click on my blog. I'll, I'll put a blog post up. I uh, will recap this conversation and this PowerPoint so people can, can check that out who can't see it now. Yeah. So I'll just finish this up by saying, you know, in doing my research, I also found out that Muscat, um, in terms of what you were explaining earlier that, you know, I know that my grandmother, my great grandmother on my mother's side was um, Turkish, so fully Turkish uh, from the Ottoman Empire, which eventually was uh, ruling over that part of North Africa. But Mazgar means, um, when translated in Turkish, means mother of soldiers. So I found that really, really interesting when I found out um, the region itself, the history behind it. So in the next slide, I think I kind of get into that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, je suis amazir means I am a free person. So the symbol um, that I was talking about earlier in the alphabet is called the, the it's called um, the wise or, or was, which means free person or free uh, people. And so the symbol for for this group of people, which is the indigenous people, the Berber or the Mezine, um, which is the majority of North Africans. Yes, they have, um, I know you were talking about the genealogy and there is a lot of um, diversity, but the majority in terms of 
you know, because there, there was so much activity with Europeans. So there was some European ancestry, but the majority of, at least the Maghrib, is also, they do have indigenous and in, uh, blood in them. Okay. Uh, and I don't think that a lot of people, or a lot of North Africans in particular, understand the connection in the history. So if you could see that picture right there um, on the right, it's a picture of Algeria, like the flag, and then the, the actual like cutout of it. And on both sides, it is that that was like symbol, which I thought it was really interesting because when I would have conversations with my mom about like what it means or, or what, because um, like her grandmother had tattoos like that. It, that was a very common tattoo to have. Okay symbol yeah to put it right on your forehead really cool. yeah and you'll see I, I i included a photo um later on but so yeah it's very common and i i was asking her why you know her grandmother had the tattoos and i've always had a very strong connection to tattoos and i don't know why and then going through this i realized it was a big part of the yeah. culture and the the history of my people yeah um, yeah. yeah so awesome Right there, you can see as well. I just want to give you um, kind of a perspective of what it looks like to be in Algeria. So you have Berber or Imezir on top, the, the Tifnu. You have Arabic and then some French. Okay. So the languages there is very, very complex. And, and there is even some Spanish, obviously, depending on where you are along the okay. coast. But yeah. Okay. So we can go on to the next slide. <laughs> Yeah, so if you could see that photo um, right there of the elderly woman, you can see sort of the symbols on her. Um, okay. It was very common also on the chin as well. And it okay. was very common for older women. It was sort of a, a sign and a symbol of, of nobility. Um, and every time I, there's like, depending on where you are in your life, um, these women would get either more tattoos or get tattoos to symbolize like let's say giving birth for example the fertility okay. yeah so the tattooing was very much a part of the culture very much a part of um the the way of life and and also is integral in terms of uh understanding each other in, in the tribe because okay. it was very hierarchical so yeah um and i started uh digging into what it means to be a mezir and just you know the the background of our people because they're not they're not, um, they're, they're, there's, there's not a lot that ties us together, but aside from like the land itself and also the practices, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, we're in, we're in the Saharan desert and um, it's a very tough climate to exist in. And our people are, are like A1 at like living there and traveling and being able to build trains. So the Algerian people were able to build a full track all the way through the Saharan Desert up into uh, the northern part in the Mediterranean. So that just speaks to our ability to, to be in this terrain. Also sure. another reason why we were able to defeat France eventually, we had that the um, advantage in terms of knowing the land. And yeah. so, okay. yeah, and doing my digging and stuff, you see that symbol again, the, the Yez symbol. And this one um, I started, or this one is the flag of the Shao or the Shawia tribe of Algeria. And so I didn't know anything about, you know, my tribe or, or even like I started think, considering, even if you see my name, the way it's spelled, it's very different. Um, even cause like it, it is an Arabic name, but the way it's spelled is like French almost. So there's layers to my name that I always felt 
and always seen and, and you know people always ask me like are you just extra with the with the a and i'm like no it's just a part of my name and it's a, it's for a reason it's because when you say it in arabic it goes shame met and the met um in in ancient times in, in north africa there was a goddess named met and she was you know the goddess of fertility the goddess of of justice and and you know all these things that i think I've come to uh in a weird way come to like be so yes. yeah it's, it's very much part of my history but when I started finding out you know especially the Shao people um aside from the spelling is very similar to my name I forgot that I had listened like I went to Algeria I was listening to music we would get you know songs and burned on CDs and everything from our cousins of just music that we really loved there because uh, Algeria has like rye music and, and different like the uh, Arabian drums actually originate from North Africa so we have um, a history a long history of sharing drums and, and music together so if you could see that photo right in the middle it's like a screenshot of my Spotify um, so that was a song that I remember uh, we would just jam out to at a wedding um, and for some reason I, just, I liked it and I had it saved thank God to my Spotify and so I don't know why I, I didn't even read it, but it just one day it just hit me and I saw Shell was right there. And I was like, I can understand exactly what they're saying. Um, very cool. Very cool, yeah. And that's when I started understanding because the digger, I, the the more I dig, uh, dig deep into Shell and the Shellians um, tribes, because there's obviously various tribes all over Algeria and then Morocco and elsewhere, but these people were very, very mobile. And so their language resembles that in terms of being, including um, like some Spanish and in including some, you know, right. what, it's very layered. So that was the first clue that I got. And then once I saw this bread down here, um, I was like, that brought me back to my childhood. Cause I'm like, my mom has that exact like thing, uh, right. that tool to make that bread. And I was like, oh my God, like this is my people. What's it, what's it called? I have no idea. <laughs> we just call it bread, and I didn't know it was specific to us. So that was, you know, yeah. it was really cool to see to see that, and and also be able to relate everything to even the, the physicality of my people, because the show people, because they travel so much, and we're and we're the most mobile in terms of the tribes, the North African tribes. It reflects in the, in the skin tone and it reflects in the eyes and stuff of my people. So you, this image of the three little girls, you can see that, you know, they're fairer skin. Some of them have lighter eyes. And um, my sister off to my side here resembles that. She has, you know, green eyes and she's fairer skinned and I'm, you know, more darker. And I thought that that was beautiful and very much like symbolic of my family which we have very, very dark and very, very light, but also like green eyes is runs through both sides of my family, which is different um, for, for a lot of Africans. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So we can go on to the next one. And this is where everything just kind of got sealed for me in terms of what my people have been through, what they've been able to accomplish and, and what they've but they've held on to in terms of um, their capacity for revolution, for change, for intelligence, for, for so many things um, over time, not just in, in one period. They've been consistently, you know, going waves, but they've, they've maintained a, a strong presence in terms 
of the global influence. So this image on your far left is Queen Kahina. Um, and I had no idea this woman existed, but I knew that one of my mom's like good friends was named Kahina. And I thought that name was gorgeous. I've never heard it before. And I remember asking my mom, like she was, she was also a beautiful woman, but I, I remember asking my mom, like, where is that name from? Like, I, I didn't know, I didn't think it was Arabic. And she goes, oh, it's the, the Kabeli. Kabeli is basically the other, it's like a showy Kabeli. And then there's, oh, I totally forgot the last one, but basically they're the other, um, Emezir tribe that's been very much resistant throughout the entirety of the French Revolution or the French um, colonization. And so Queen Kahina, who the statue exists right now um, in, East, in an Eastern city, I forgot exactly where, but it's, it's to symbolize her, her integrity and, and, to, and her ability to rile up not just women, but men and become a military leader in the early, uh, was it seventh century? It was the seventh century. Um, and holding a resistance against um, the fronts that were that were collapsing because North Africa and specifically Algeria was in tribes. They weren't exactly unified. She was called the queen because she was able to unify so many people as okay. a resistance. Um, and her story, you know, her legacy still lives on. And so the statue of her was really impactful to me because I just felt like a leader and I felt like a woman who could, you know, do incredible things, but I never understood why. And now I feel like I understand the legacy of my people is the legacy of the women as well, because in the Algerian revolution, they held a huge part in being able to maneuver weapons, money, anything um, during the, the revolution, because the, the men weren't allowed or soldiers weren't allowed to touch them. So they'd be veiled or whatever, and they would hide things. And so they were very much active in the in the resistance, and so to me that was very inspiring to find out that there's you know there's still a legacy there, and they they admire her. It's not like it's, it was just of the past. They do respect. Yeah. They do have this respect for for women. Very cool. Yeah, and so here we have another revolutionary um, at that at the time of the uh, French Algerian Revolution or war. Uh, Abdel Karim was noticed in the Time magazine, um, and so I don't know if you guys are familiar about the time they were torturing millions and millions of, of um, Algerians in terms of either like my uh, father's side of the family, they were, their villages were burned down. So we don't really have a, a, a history or, or, you know, we don't have any paper trail of, of where our family starts from. So that's why I kind of went and dig deep into just other ways of finding out. Um, but yeah, so they were between the, the, the villages being burned down, the displacement of other people, all there was there was torture happening at every corner. It was chaotic. Um, and so he was one of the people that really held through even while being tortured. So I thought that that was really amazing. Um, and yeah, and so the next photo right here in the middle is just the three beautiful Berber women. And I think that one of the things that most attracted me or most like um, just just sat with me right in my heart and just really like mirrored me was was this like intense stare and this you know this almost I could see that yeah and and assurance of who they are and I just love that yeah um, yeah they also have the tattoos too but they're younger so they don't have as many 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, Albert Camus, right there on the bottom, who's a, one, considered one of the best philosophers uh, to exist, was uh, he was born in French, French Algeria. Um, but I think a lot of his his impact and influence definitely comes from the Algerian people. Um, and right above it is uh, Ahmed Ben Bella, who was the first president of Algeria, who was also a socialist and a revolutionist or a re revolutionary who who was impactful in in terms of the Pan African you know revolution against colonialism. He he was very much. I mean, you could see him next to JFK. Uh, and I think that was a really important time in history, not just for the for the U.S. but globally. And so to see my people being right there alongside, you know, sure. yeah, such such great yeah. courage, um, it just reminded me of of our of my legacies. So for sure, cool. I think that's the last slide. Okay. Well, I I, I appreciate you sharing all that. That and with. I have experienced something similar um, to to what you you've gone through, and a lot of and a lot of people that I talk to and I work with, I kind of I kind of go through something. So let's talk about it, okay. Rather, I'm trying to you know think of this elegant way to say this. Let's just talk about it. <clears throat> One of the ways that the a lot of people I work with, with the, that are NPEs that, that discover that they're not who they thought they were. And that's just the oversimplified term. And I mean, you can identify with this, right? So people suddenly get a DNA test and the person they thought was their father is not their biological father. So half of who they thought they were is gone. Your situation is a little different, but it's but it's very similar. This still causes an identity crisis, and one of the, the one of the ways that I have worked through my identity crisis is I have I've delved into my genealogy, and I tell people uh, that it's important. That I tell them it's important that, uh, and I won't give you the long version of this, <clears throat> but you hang around me enough, you'll hear me say this more than once is that when we create our identity in the first place, we just believe things that we're told as we're growing up as children. And, and it can be as simple, the simple example as I use is that someone's a Cubs fan because their dad was a Cubs fan because their grandpa was a Cubs fan, yeah. right? And they're not a Cubs fan by birth. They've chosen that at some point. They may have chosen it when they were four because they, they admired their father wearing a Cubs hat and going to Cubs games with their dad or whatever the case may be, but they've made that decision. And <clears throat> you can identify with that growing up, you adopted a lot of things, your identity that were American, you know, the, and, and then you had the whole Algerian thing pulling on you. And so one of the things I say is that we, we really have, we don't, we have the ability, we do this all the time that we actually get, we actually decide who we are. And what MPEs, what we find ourselves with is that most people just believe that who you are is just who you are and you're born with that. Now, there's a little bit of truth to that, right? Mm -hmm. I'll never be Algerian. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, but uh, but if I wanted to move to Algeria and, and, and adopt and eat Algerian food and adopt their customs, I could blend into a certain degree and basically almost become Algerian, which mm -hmm. is my, which is my point here. And so... 
I encourage people to dig through their ancestry and, and I tell them, pick and choose who you want to be. Find the things that inspire you and ad adopt those into your life, which is exactly when you were talking through, through all those pictures and the statues and, the, and the, the, the women and the heroes and the politicians, it's exactly what you've done. You've let that light your fire and build your identity. You found people uh, and uh, places and people that inspire you. And you have said, I'm going to take that with me. And you've tag and you slap that sticker on and you go over here and you, and you slap another one on until you, you basically design who you are. And with technology, it has become not only can we really start digging back mm -hmm. into, especially European heritage, uh, which is unfair, but <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it is, but I, I have traced some of my ancestors all the way back to the, to 950. Um, and I am very fortunate to do that, <clears throat> but technology gives us the ability to do that. It also gives us the ability to learn. I mean, most of the stuff you've learned, I know you've been to Algeria a lot, but a lot of you probably learned on the, on the internet Absolutely. stuff you wouldn't have been exposed to Digging through articles and stuff. Yeah. 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 It is available to us, but I think that that's kind of where there is this difficulty in terms of, of information being distributed on on the internet because a lot of the stuff I one had a degree that helped me know how to research and do the yeah. be able to find exactly what I, I'm looking for but two also I have accessibility in terms of being able to read and understand what journals are talking about and what you yeah. know these findings are so there is a little bit of I would say a privilege on my end and, and being able to do this. So yeah, understood. Yeah. The, the, the cool thing is, is that in history, the, the victor writes, writes the history, right? They write the history books the, with the time we live in now, more and more, uh, more like the stories of coming out of Algeria, you'll, you'll be able to find them more and more on the internet. So, and, you know, 30 years ago, you had to probably go to Algeria to hear them. And now you don't have to, now you just, ha now you just have to subscribe to the, the Bradley Hall show. <laughs> you know, everything. That, that, was, that was shameless. Wasn't it <laughs> no, that bad? <laughs> great plug. <laughs> no, but you're, but you're right. It is really exciting. And I think that's also why I do want to get my story out there is to inspire other people to do exactly what I did. And you don't have to, to be what people have told you. I think that that's, that comes, you know, in the healing process, you definitely pick and choose and you and you, you, things will resonate with you that feel true. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to ask you, uh, I, I am mapping out, I, I call it my world tour. Hmm. I'm mapping out my ancestry and I'm going to go start visiting, uh, the motherland, the home countries. And you, I mean, you have experience with that. There, I, I have to believe there's nothing like it. I like think about me and my sister talk about this all the time, that the times that we spent there were the happiest times of our childhood. And of from what I remember, my parents, that was the happiest I've seen them. That was, yeah, it feels like this bliss almost. Um, and yeah, I've been really missing it lately, especially with everything that's been going on. Um, so if you can go, definitely go. And it feels, there's a part of you that just like, it, it's like home. And I think for us, you know, who've experienced so much trauma or, or have been in one way or another abandoned, 
it's it's almost necessary for you to develop and find that for yourself because yeah. you can look at each i love the song you know dna by kendrick sex money murder is in all of our dna so we can go through the list and, and pick and choose you know if if we want to be a certain person there's definitely that person in your history your ancestry but there's a lot of also really interesting things when you dig deeper beyond yeah. just the DNA stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, as we start to, to wrap this up, uh, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you going through all that. Um, you're the, uh, you have the distinction of being the first person to bring a PowerPoint onto my show. I'm happy about <laughs> I that. Waited to, I waited, I waited intentionally to tell you that till it was over. Uh, but I looked at it and I, I was fascinated by it. And, uh, and I think it's, it's critical because I want people to understand um, you have a lot of trauma in your background. And we did, we, I thought we'd go into that more than we did, but, uh, but I enjoyed what we did. So that, that's not a problem. But I want to highlight, you're a trauma recovery coach with the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaches, because of your, tr the, your childhood trauma that you experienced, you've been trying to work through. And, and this experience, finding, connecting with your ancestry has been incredibly cathartic and therapeutic for you, yes? A thousand percent. It feels, like I said, like a homecoming because I don't know about you guys, but for me, the, the biggest feeling I've always had was not feeling like I belonged anywhere and so belonging. I know a lot of people that know that feeling. Yeah. And, and it, that's what I'm saying. I think I want to put this out there for others to feel what I feel in terms of this return. Um, and it's really interesting because you do see parts of yourself that go just beyond parents or not parents, you know, it is yeah. like a community. So yeah, with that I hope I wish you guys so much luck in your healing journeys. And I hope that you tap into that a little bit. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap this up, but you're going to stick around, right? Uh, we've got a, we've got a Q and a session with, uh, with the, my, uh, my people from the NPE experience are going to hang around. They're going to ask you a few questions uh, for everyone else. We appreciate you uh, joining us live on Facebook uh, and on WUBI radio. Uh, we appreciate you look for us in two weeks. We'll be back again at 7 30 PM with another, the Bradley hall show live. And I, do believe my next uh, guest is going to be Libby Copeland. She's the author of The Lost Family and an NPE expert. She's an award-winning journalist. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, thank you for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks. And uh, everyone else, stay right here with me for a moment. Bill, can we cut the feed? Sure thing. I guess I should smile while we're still alive, right? I suppose. <laughs> I think I got it. Good, because there was no way for me to do it on this end. <laughs> I, I thought for a second, I was like, wait a minute, I think I got this party started. I probably ought to be the one to shut it down. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, uh, thank you for that. Shema, I really appreciate. Um, all right, so uh, Bill, we'll talk about this. I get some feedback. They said they couldn't see um, slides. Yes, uh, that's going to be an issue that I'm going to bring up uh, with you after we're done. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. All right. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah. Well, so we recorded this, so we have the whole presentation. It'll go on YouTube just as we did it here. Just the people live there were, um, Bill and I got to work this connection out. Um, it's so complicated. I, I can't believe how complicated it can be. So anyway, uh, everyone, thanks for hanging out, sticking around. Um, does anyone have any questions for Shema? They're shy. Sure. Do, do you um, plan at some point of going back to visit? Absolutely, yeah. How, how often um, do you go? Um, I haven't been back since the, since I was eight or nine. So, I mean, my sister has been back. My mom has been back. Um, but that was a part, I guess, of my, my, my process was I really pushed my culture and my identity away for a long time. Um, and I think this was because it was too hard to, to reconcile with everything that was happening in terms of the language differences and just also like feeling guilty all the time for my own parents for not being able to be you know what they wanted like an Algerian girl or whatever so it was a lot of stuff that pushed me away from it um and only and and you know really grieving my family and stuff that I've come to a place where I'm like I want to go back I want to see my people I want to I want to feel normal like I don't want to stand out anymore you know just for a little bit and yeah I think it, the situation with COVID right now is pretty bad over there so I don't know when I'd be able to travel but definitely yeah COVID's really screwed things up hasn't it yeah I was supposed to go to Italy this past summer hey <laughs> I went to Italy for my 21st birthday. Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. I think it was right before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to go for 14 days, I think. Mm. Um, Where were you going to visit? Uh, we were going to go all the way through uh, we're Rome, Florence. Mm. Um, we were just going to do a, a world tour. Uh, that's what I'm doing with my ancestor. We we're going to do an Italian tour. Yeah. I, I think we we're going to hit five cities in 14 days. We're gonna yeah, so much fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think we hit up Pompeii. Yeah, Pompeii. And surprisingly, that was like the most exciting part for me. And the food there was delicious. So <laughs> check that out. Anybody have any other questions? Can, can you? Yeah. Could you? Uh, are you comfortable with telling us a little bit of your story that you weren't able to include in? Yeah. Is there anything particular you want to know, or just in general? Um, no, just just want to hear. I mean, I, I tried to take in the presentation that you gave and everything like that. And I'm just kind of wondering where you, you know, about you and your personal story. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So definitely. Um, so the I kind of explained the origins of where the trauma began um, for me in childhood. You know, just immediately being in two different cultures in terms of parents being and looking, speaking different, um, and then, you know, trying to be American and fitting in, and it was, it was a battle, um, but around four, that's when um, sexual abuse started to happen, um, and that continued on until um, basically I left. Uh, that was a neighbor who um, 
I'm not sure what happened to him, but he was also like the janitor and would like, you know, sweep through the building and everything like that. And that's how, you know, things transpired. Um, but yeah, he, he was kept around by my mother a lot, um, who I'm now pretty sure was narcissistic or had narcissistic personality disorder. Um, in addition to, uh, I think bipolar too. So that I had a really, really, really rough childhood um, with her in specific with my mother because my father was working all the time. So he was at home a lot. Um, and yeah, so that left, I think that left a lot of stress and pressure on my mother. And you could see just, I think now looking back, the, the change in moods and the swiftness and, and just the erratic violence was just, I didn't think of it at the time, but they're definitely a part of bipolar. Um, but as we got older, uh, I, you know, I, I started getting, I think around eight, I had like a really bad reaction or separation anxiety um, before that. And I think around eight or nine, I started you know, waking up and becoming more conscious of the world. And I had a really bad reaction to my mom and just completely shut her out and just hated her, um, you know, and didn't want to be around her, didn't want to be anything like her, didn't hated the fact that I looked like her. So that's also when, um, that was also when I started, you know, having really bad um, self-esteem issues because I couldn't look in the mirror without looking at her. Um, and the fact that I hated her, I saw that in me and I hated that. Um, and so, yeah, when I was 16, I decided I was just going to graduate early and get the hell out of there. Um, and that was really difficult. She made it really, really difficult during that time. Um, and yeah, I felt really isolated since um, like going off to college and then coming back. She was very different with me and very controlling, very, you know, trying to, to uh, basically I was the scapegoat, scapegoat in, in the family dynamic. Um, and it got really, really hard for me after college because I had been through enough and then coming back home. So that was just like a huge slap in the face um, and really knocked me off my feet. And I think that, at that point was when I started understanding that I had to get away from her, that she was not good for me, that she, you okay? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just been, like I said, emotional. Thank you. There's no reason to apologize. No reason to apologize at all. I want to make sure you're okay. Yeah, I'm good. I just, yeah. I appreciate you being vulnerable with us. Uh, and I, I, I want to be vulnerable and I want to get it out there because it is part of my story and part of of why I ended up, you know, in the program with Bradley and it was just timing, I feel like. Um, and yeah, when the pandemic hit, so my sister was studying abroad right before the pandemic hit and that was the first time I had ever been away from her, first time I'd ever, you know, been on my own with my parents and specifically my mom. And when the pandemic hit, it got really, really, really bad. Like it was, it was just, it was just too much. And so I got in a really bad relationship and 
you know, just stayed with him like the whole time because I couldn't deal with it. Um, and then my sister eventually came back from France and things started to hit harder because I started to understand how, you know, I had no support outside of my younger sister. Um, and it was getting harder to like keep going. So I feel like in a weird way, the pandemic was a blessing um, for me at least, because I could, that it was almost like the intensity of it pushed me. It was like the pressure just pushed me out of there and got me, you know, to a place where I could, I had to fight for myself. It was either myself or them. And that, that made me, you know, it broke me first, but now I feel like it really did make me and it made me want to be nothing like that and want to create safe spaces for other people. Sorry. Well, thank you so much for, for telling your story. It is helpful. I do, when you're sitting here talking, I see some similarities to my own story as far as my mother and and things like that. And it is, it is hugely helpful to listen. And I, I want to thank you. Thank you for listening and asking because it means a lot to be able to share it with other people who understand what, what I'm going through. Um, and yeah, I think also just the, it's, it's usually reverse, I guess, for, for in, in my situation, I was much closer to my father than my mother. I hated her. I think, you know, that was also something that I felt like I couldn't talk about in society or out loud yeah. because motherhood is so, you know, like respected or so, you know, on this other level that I just felt like I was the only one with a mother like this <laughs> and felt so much guilt for feeling the way I felt towards her. <laughs> And I'm just happy that I can release that and, and finally let women just be women and mothers just be mothers and not have, you know, this dialogue just restrict us from being really honest about our situations at home. Yeah, for sure. You know that guilt is part of the trauma, right? So? You know the guilt and the and the shame. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Part of the yeah. trauma. Yeah, that's that's what I've finally have come to to terms with is that. Yeah, it's uh, it, I don't, uh, it's weird how that works out, but um, the victim ends up carrying all the guilt for what happened to them. Yeah, um, I think not having, particularly going through it, not having spaces or even people who are talking about it or even you know mentioned it was another reason why I'm just like, I really want to talk to kids because, and connect with them because the younger that we get them, the more that we have, they have some stability and some resources outside of, of what their reality is being thrown at them, yeah. you know what I mean? In terms of yeah. the gap fighting and everything. Like I thought if I just had one person who could explain to me, like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dr. Romani, um, on, she's on YouTube and on a bunch of things, but she's an expert on narcissism and her videos were the final ones that helped me get the fuck out and just be like, this is not going to change. Like hearing her, a professional being like, you know what I mean? Like giving me yeah. permission to do that was huge. So I think that, 
you know, having, if we just, if there's some, some space for, for children to feel like they have some power, even if they're stuck in the situation, I think that that's critical. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is, um, and I, I don't know how aware uh, of this you are, but uh, we live in a unique time because we're talking about things that we've never talked about before. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of us here, our grandparents didn't talk about anything. You just didn't, you just didn't tell your business in public. It's just, uh, you just didn't. And you were stuck in your family. Uh, geographically, you were stuck in your family. People didn't, you know, move around. Obviously, as time has gone on, people have migrated, moved more. And today you can go live anywhere you want. Uh, you can be in a different city in a matter of days if you wanted to, to you know, move in. Um, so it's starting to happen. I mean, we're starting, people my age are starting to have these conversations and people your age are starting to look at people my age and older and be like, what, what the hell's wrong with you people? And, and I think that's a good conversation to have. I think we're headed in the right direction, but unfortunately I think our mental health is suffering in this country just as fast as this is starting to change. Exactly. Uh, so it's good timing, but we, I mean, we're, we're headed for a disaster and this pandemic has really highlighted just how mentally unhealthy we are with a lot of things. Um, so I, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that all, all these people are here because they're doing the same thing that you're doing at our age. I'm glad you're here at your age and you're doing it. I'm glad your sister's with you. I'm glad you're talking to people your age um, yeah. because it's not, we, we, the way we're doing it just isn't working. We got to do something differently. Mm -hmm. sure. um, I, I would highly recommend this book that I just came across recently for you guys. Um, it's called Do Better um, by Rachel Ricketts with two T's. Uh, it's just about basically spiritual activism and how a great awakening needs to happen across the board for all of us to move forward because these systems need to, need to collapse and we need to like finally understand the impact that we're having on not just earth, but like each other. Yeah. And yeah, I highly recommend it. It definitely gave me some footing in terms of this discussion of, of how we can move forward because it's really scary right now. It is. Yeah. Can you, can you drop that in the chat real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Anybody else have any questions for Shayla? I wanted to acknowledge that I teach English as a second language and we have many of our, um, uh, children that also have the issues that you've talked about with the two languages as they're growing up and learning two languages and one language is at home and one language is the school. So of course they, our purpose is to teach them to read and write and to speak in English and communicate with their teachers. But at the same time, we don't want them to leave behind the language and certainly not the culture of their family. And so often the moms would come in and say that they only speak Spanish. And so they would say, they can't communicate with their own children now because the children have begun speaking only English, including at home. Mm -hmm. And very often that, so I could really um, acknowledge and identify with what you said that you went through with the, the language issue between the mainstream culture and perhaps the culture be at home being different. And I always, always begin teaching my students that I want them to remain bilingual. I want them to, to go and become bilingual. And I always, always, no matter how advanced or if they're very, very beginners, that's one of the most important things that I talk with them constantly about 
is you're going to eventually move into English and you're going to be, of course, able to communicate and do all of your, all the things you need to do at school. And I generally work with small children. So I just want always to acknowledge their need to be bilingual and to maintain their culture. Absolutely. Um, and so many of the mommies would talk to me because I speak both languages and they would tell me how hard it is when their own children stop speaking the home language and switch to um, English, the language of school. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I was listening and understanding what you were talking about. There's a beautiful book right now called, well, it's a, it's a challenging book called Beautiful Country. Mm-hmm. It's about this whole system of a little girl growing up. She is Chinese American and within and what it was like for her to switch um, languages and switch cultures. And even though I taught ESL to children for 21 years, there was so much, there's no way I could understand everything that they're going through mm-hmm. and or did go through smallest things like the teachers expect them to come in and walk around and look at all these books at the book fair that they can never buy not even a $5 book, not even a $2 book, yet the teachers parade them around because most everybody wants to buy books at the book fair. And that was all part of, um, it was so just little things that we don't realize because being in the mainstream culture, we can't possibly understand because we haven't lived it, no matter how empathetic we might be. Thank you so Um, much for saying that. That, Yes, you just- Thank you for sharing. Of course. And I think that that's another thing that I just would, I just want, you know, people to understand is that being an immigrant is not just, you know, the, the idea of moving is so much of this internal battle that, that your parents battle with as well, um, in terms of trying to, to love you and get to know you. And it's so difficult. Um, and obviously each family and each story is different. Um, but thank you so much for, for your effort and, and trying to maintain that because, you know, my mom would always be like, please learn Arabic, please learn Arabic. Like, you know, try to, it was like trying to put me in classes and stuff like that. And I just didn't have the capability or the capacity to do it, but I do understand now exactly why she, she encouraged me to do that. So thank you for, for being that person for the, for the younger kids. It's so important. And there's many teachers that are just loving what we do in assisting just a little bit. Yeah, it helps so much. I know that when I when I had that ESL teacher, I remember going from a two-teacher um, classroom to graduating. I was in honors and everything like that later on in my life. And I do remember that. She, I loved her. I loved being with her. And she was so supportive and very kind. Um, I remember her being very kind to my mother as well, which was a huge thing for me seeing how differently she was treated was another layer. Sorry, (laughs) that just triggered me. It was another layer of, that I internalized as well. Thank you. You bet. And I'll definitely check it out, beautiful country, right? In Chinese, um, the United States, if you were to translate it, it apparently the word that they use for us means beautiful country. Oh so, and it's just taught and such a fascinating book from that point of view. No, I love that so much because it, it really is like the essence or the idea of America that we give up everything for. 
Mm -hmm. um, and our parents know that they sacrificed a lot for us to have a chance at a beautiful country. This was great, Jamie. I, I, I truly appreciate this is, this is, um, I'm gonna have to have you come back because this is what I wanted. I wanted <laughs> to get deeper into this a little bit with the, the trauma, but, but I, I loved what you did. So, uh, you know, yeah, it was, that's why I did the presentation because I'm like, knowing me, I'd go on for hours and hours just all over the place, but I'd love to come back <laughs> and finish up the story. And thank you guys for joining me. And yeah, does anyone have any last questions before we wrap this up? Awesome. Well, thank all of you for, for showing up for this uh, Q&A session. Shama, thanks for the whole thing. Um, it was great. Everybody, uh, everybody tell Bill thanks. Bill, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you were so very welcome. It was my pleasure. And uh, thank you for bringing you and your story. Um, I, I, wish, I wish I could give you a big hug from here in New Hampshire, which is where I am right now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's uh, your, your, your truth is very, very strong. And um, I, I look forward to hearing more, you know, from you and about you. I, I have questions, um, you know, being uh, an American of African descent about my, not only my people, but other peoples from the continent of Africa. And so when I hear your story, I'm like, sister. <laughs> Brother, I feel you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So yes, most definitely. And, um, and, and while I have the floor, you know, Brad, I got to tell you, and I, I thought of this in the middle of this presentation is that I attend a lot of wellness and a lot of well-being and a lot of you know, educational platforms like this. And I got to tell you, a lot of them, most of them don't hit the mark and yours definitely do. Um, now that I've had a chance to participate in a couple of few of them, I think you're bringing something to this arena that, um, that needs to be shared, you know, and a lot much wider platform. And because I'm getting something out of this where I've joined other programs where I just sat there and kind of listened and like, yeah, I got nothing. Um, you know, and not everything's made for everybody, but like every single thing that I hear you do has just been on point. So let's keep it going. And um, yeah, let's let's get Shama back. Thank you, everybody. I, I pay Bill. Why <laughs> <laughs> he says nice things about me. He he. Uh, no, no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I'm just trying to deflect. I, I appreciate that, Bill. That means that means a lot to me. Um, I thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful uh, for all of you being here and uh, looking forward to, to doing it again. Good night, everyone. Thank right. you. Everybody have a good night. I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Bradley Hall. Also, you can find the show on Facebook at the Bradley Hall show where we broadcast live every other Monday. You can also catch the video version of each episode on YouTube. Go to my website, www.thebradleyhall.com, where you'll easily find all of this information in one centralized location. Again, I appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time. Until then.